2: Hi everyone, I'm, well, it's obvious. I'm John Verhoeven, and I was a cop back in the 80s in Sydney. And I'm Paul Verhoeven, John's son. I'm an author, and I wrote two books about Dad's time as a cop. The first five seasons of Loose Unit spanned my time in general duties, forensics, my time as a firefighter... And even my stint running a funeral home.
1: This season, we're visiting the locations of Australia's most notorious, baffling, horrific crimes and looking at what happened there. From Snowtown to the family, from the Morehouse murders
2: to haunted highways. This season of Loose Units is your go to guide to the worst crimes in Australian true crime history.
1: Welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Hello, and welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Every week on Lucianus the Shadow Files, Dad regales me, and by extension you, all with a different story about various crimes across different nations and different time periods. And generally speaking, Dad and I are on the same page. Now that doesn't mean we agree, because we don't always agree, but what it does mean is that typically speaking, uh, we've picked the case together, we've gone through case files together, we've done lots of back and forth and research. But every once in a while, Dad will effectively ambush me, and this morning is one of those times, folks. Dad has prepared a story for us uh, from the annals of true crime history, and he hasn't actually told me anything about it. So without further ado, Dad, would you like to uh, take us by the hand and lead us through the dark woods of your mind?
2: Sweet dear Paul said to me prior to coming on air this morning, listeners, now, Dad, I I really want you to, you know, bury deep and spare no detail So it's a tough story. Mm -hmm. It's a story that I've dug up from a um, highly restricted uh, source. I got to actually prove beyond a reasonable doubt the veracity of that claim that the publication is highly restricted because what I then did because I had not heard of this particular crime Mm Mm-hmm. I then went through at least half a dozen um, periodicals and articles that have been written about this case. And trust me, listeners, you're about to hear some things that um, the public did not necessarily get to hear because um, the, the writer of this particular uh, uh, case, Uh, was a chief inspector with New Scotland Yard. And this crime occurred in 1948 in England in the town of Blackburn, Mm -hmm. which is in the middle of England. And it's a very ordinary, ordinary town. Like, all towns are ordinary. But then when something terrible happens... There's a spotlight and, you know, the spotlight then creates an aura and, and a certain sort of sensation generally created by the media. And all of a sudden people think, wow, that, that's a really fucked up town. But of course we know that that's not the case. Um, but one of the great things about, and there's, there's not a lot of good that comes out of this story, but... Yeah. It's a fingerprint story, and this particular case is, at least at the time, in 1948, this was the crime that necessitated the highest number of people being fingerprinted in relation to a particular crime in the history of the known world. Wow. this is the case where the police absolutely went hammer and tongs and one of the things that i've gleaned from this case also that is not necessarily available to the public is the extraordinary high rank of the officers involved and how things happen very very quickly now to set the picture now, a warning. We need a, a, a serious warning before we start. Mm-hmm. It involves a young child. Christine said to me this morning, Dad, whatever you do... Oh, fuck, yeah. she didn't say dad. Fuck. She said, John, whatever you do, <laughs> don't refer to the girl as a baby. She was adamant. So to set the scene, the the girl... Involved. Yep. She was three years and eight months old. But, and this is possibly a factor to put into the back of your minds, listeners, yep. is that she looked older than she was. She was very, very talkative, and she she got uh, the flu, uh, sort of a case of possibly pneumonia and she was hospitalized in a um, hospital called Queens Park Hospital in Blackburn. Mm-hmm. So she had a mild form of pneumonia and the staff absolutely loved her. She was happy. She was, as I said, she looked, some some reports have said she looks or looked seven years of age um, and whether that is related to the the ultimate outcome is up for um, discussion, you know, sort of in terms of those listening can sort of formulate their own ideas, which is part of the whole true crime genre. People, they listen to the facts as we give them, and then they process that information. Now, this particular hospital was around about a mile from the centre of the town, and it had an eight foot high sandstone wall that sort of sort of was a perimeter fence and yeah. it was a wooded area and it was quite, um, it was sort of on the the cusp of sort of the countryside, which as you know, Paul, <clears throat> you and Tegan have experienced English villages. And it it's a matter of basically seconds for when you go from the middle of the, the village and all of a sudden you're just out in the countryside. Yeah. So it's a very remote, quiet area. And the children's ward, this is children's ward number three, Mm -hmm. was for basically, dare I say it, it was for small babies. Okay. And it was at the extreme end of the hospital. Now, in this particular ward, there were 12 cots. And at the time of this particular, um, this crime, there were six children. And they ranged in age um, from 12 months, and the oldest was, was the girl. Now, her name was June Ann Devaney, and she was the oldest kid in the ward. Now, around about 8 o'clock on the 14th of May, 1948, the, 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 the night nurse who happened to be a student, her mm-hmm. name was Hannah O'Donovan, she commences duty. She immediately inspects all um, her patients, uh, you know, her, her the people that she's going to be looking after, make sure they're all comfortable.
1: Yeah, which is actually what Lucy Letby's job was when we were dealing with uh, the story of Lucy Letby a couple of w- uh, months back, was to go around the ward, make sure everyone's okay, check on all the babies, right? Like, that's the same same gig, effectively.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. And she, at 10 to 9... She speaks to uh, June and Devaney, and she they're chatting away. She's very lucid. She's smart. She's She's got great personality. All the staff absolutely love this girl because she'd been there for approximately two weeks. Now, this happens on Friday, the 14th of May. On the yep. 15th, which is the Saturday, she's going to be discharged the next day. And... The student nurse, Hannah, she she says, you know, are you okay? Is there anything you want? And Lucy just says, oh, God, what a terrible Freudian slip. <coughs> Sorry. The, the, the young girl makes a, uh, you know, comments that she's fine. And June then sort of lies down. The nurse continues on her rounds. Yep. Uh, until around about 10 o'clock. She goes into the kitchen. She's preparing the breakfast for the next day. And then there's a change of shift. Nurse O'Donovan, she, at 11.30, Mm -hmm. relieves the student nurse. And then that nurse, as is the case, they do what's called a a handover. She and the student nurse, they go out and they make sure that all the kids are, are fine. And she sees they're all asleep all very apparently comfortable. She goes back into the kitchen, continues to uh, take over from the student nurse, checking on all the the meals, the porridges for the next morning. Mm -hmm. And around about midnight, she hears a baby crying. Now, this particular baby had a surname, Tattersall. So she goes out to this little baby. Now that baby is sleeping next to June. And the nurse changes the baby's nappies, the bedclothes, and then picks the little baby up out of the bed and for about 20 minutes walks the baby back and forth to soothe the baby. All the time, the little girl is fast asleep. And, and from the, the notes that I've um, <clears throat> read that were written by an incredibly senior member of New Scotland Yard, the nurse actually, while she's holding this <clears throat> gorgeous little baby, looks down at June and says to the little boy <clears throat> that you should be asleep like her. That is the last time that June Ann Devaney was seen alive. By anyone so the nurse returns to the kitchen and she's carrying on with her general duties and then she hears around about 1230 a.m. on the Saturday yep. she hears a girl's voice very lucid and she can actually hear this girl talking she's by herself in the kitchen but she thinks that it's the nurse that she'd relieved from the ward a few hours before. And then she's convinced that this is Nurse O'Donovan. She's expecting her to appear in the kitchen, thinking she may have come back to, to pick up something. And there's a bit of a delay, then she thinks, oh, maybe she's talking to one of the night porters, okay? They had porters that their job was to, in the wee hours of the morning, was to stoke the boilers, you know, to maintain the heat. In the hospital yeah and she waits quite a while and she actually thinks it's a bit of a joke that you know this is i mean she thinks that clearly it is that girl she goes back into the um back into the ward and then she hears a toddler crying she goes to look with the little baby and then all of a sudden she realizes that a particular baby is actually this baby was prone to falling out of the cot so she checks on the baby very carefully goes back into the kitchen goes back into the um into the ward and readjusts the little cot and then she notices that two doors were open and one of the doors actually had access to the actual hospital grounds and both the doors are open Mm -hmm. she goes over to close them and there was a strong it was very windy and there was a faulty catch and she sort of thought okay that's a bit weird but so she closes the two doors and then she goes back to check on the little baby and she looks down to the cot next to the little baby that she'd been attending to and june and devaney who was in that particular cot next to Mm -hmm. the other little baby she's gone that's around about 1.20 a.m. She thought, firstly, that the baby, the kid, who's almost four and could speak and all the staff love this little girl, that she may have somehow or other got out of the cot and gone to the toilet. So she begins to search. And then at 1.30, which is 10 minutes later, she informs the night sister by telephone. She calls her and says, look, this this." This kid's not here. Now, remember the time. It's now 1.30 a.m. on the Saturday morning, the day that she was supposed to be released from hospital. The nurses start to get together. Then they notice on the floor, at the base of the bed of the girl that is now missing, a bottle of sterile water. And it's called... It has a brand name on it. It's called Winchester. And... It's on the floor near the cot and the nurse remembered that she'd actually seen this bottle about an hour before on a trolley. And it's a very important bottle. Then the two nurses, they're standing there and they can see because the floor's been polished with a sort of a wax seal, and they can see footprints on the polished floor, and the it looks they think it's someone with bare feet. Yeah. And they see the footprints go from over the door, sort of near the door, sort of slashed a window, directly to the young girl's cot. As soon as they see this, they realise that the baby's actually gone. Yeah. Then they get in touch with the police. Mm -hmm. They report the, the child missing, and they then get all the male hospital porters and all the staff to start you know, resuming the search. And at this point, listeners, I'll just say this, that the first police officer to to arrive at the scene was an inspector. Now that's very, very unusual. Um, you know, you'd normally have just bobbies, you know, sort of constables, but you begin to appreciate the, the enormity of the case insofar as, you know, an inspector. He's were the, the child's parents
1: person. were the child's parents particularly important or well connected? Was this somebody sort of going no, like, no. "This is the mayor's daughter"? Okay, okay.
2: no, it's okay. just it's it's a it's a a kid who's not quite four, okay. has, has vanished from a hospital, and within an hour, the inspector, mm-hmm. and imagine this, he pulls up at the family's home, and he picks the dad up. And at this stage, they've got no idea what's happening, and the two of them go by car to the hospital. And the police are already sort of gearing up a major search. And then, now you recall that I said to you at um, at one twenty, one thirty. That's when the police were first notified. Yes. At three seventeen a.m., a plane, a police constable, yeah, by the name of Parkinson. Uh huh. He calls the uh, the police officer's attention to they found the body of June they found her around about 100 meters from her bed near a remember how i mentioned the uh, the wall the stone wall yeah yeah they found her lying next to the wall face down in the grass and she was dressed in her little nighty so she's right next to a sandstone wall the inspector uh, with the father, think about this listeners, so you've been picked up at three in the morning by a senior police officer, you've been driven to the hospital, God knows what will be going through your mind. You then get the call that they've found the little girl, the inspector takes the father through the field to the wall and the father makes the identification. And the area cordoned off now, Paul. I'd like to talk to you at this juncture about the evidence that they found. Okay. Um, are you okay? Is this sort of?
1: I'm not a fan of dead babies, but I will say this much: it's it's you're clearly telling the story for a reason. So I'd like to hear. What I mean, you can't stop these stories halfway. So yeah, please no, no, tell no. me how how the evidence was uh, uh, how that played out.
2: Yep, yep. So 3:30 a.m. that morning. They um, summoned the um, assistant medical officer. The area was cordoned off. Then the and this is this is quite extraordinary. The chief constable of Blackburn Borough and the police surgeon, they were called to the scene. They arrived there at 4:20. Then this is unusual. A commander Young of the Metropolitan Police, New Scotland Yard. Um, was contacted, and the senior police at the scene said that they required the assistance of New Scotland Yard and they they, they required the assistance of an experienced investigator. They're not wasting mm. any time here. And weirdly, they'd also had a 11-year-old boy murdered it within the preceding few days, very mm. close by. And then they were thinking you know do we have a, a serial killer and the the proximity of the two crimes are very very close it's a, it's a it's a tight knit small community and you know so they, they they were thinking you know that maybe they've got this situation um, now they also brought in a fingerprint expert but his rank was detective inspector Which is an incredibly high-ranking fingerprint expert. So they were really going hard. The inspector from the fingerprint bureau... Yeah. He examines the Winchester bottle, which had the sterile water. And he lifted fingerprints off it. He got a fingerprint and a palm impression on the bottle. The staff biologist who was attached to the Forensic Science Laboratory um, at a town called Preston nearby. He arrived at 9am and he went to the child's body and I'm going to read out some of the evidence they, the physical evidence that they took from the scene. They took hair from blood-stained grass, the scene of the crime. They took blood-stained grass. They Mm -hmm. took hair and fibres from the wall near the body was found. They took two hairs... ...from the wall. Wow. And they also took hairs adhering to bloodstained stones in the wall. A portion of stone bearing bloodstains. Hair from another bloodstained area of the wall. A grass leaf bearing bloodstains. And are you thinking, Paul, what, what are your thoughts on the blood on the wall...
1: I don't want to be crude because I actually haven't. You haven't described the injuries no. on the on the body. Okay. Way... Well, I'll,
2: I'll um, normally we don't go into the such detail, Paul. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm just going to give you the heads up. So just
1: even even just the cursory version, so I well, we sort of make I, some conclusions. There's
2: some very interesting um, uh, information that I'd like to share with you and the listeners. Sure. Um, it's yep. pretty fucked up, but I think it's important. So they conducted a post-mortem um, of the girl and I'll just read from the, from the report, if I may. Uh, the body was dirty as though it had been rolled about on dirty wet ground.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
2: There were extensive bruises on the whole of face and parts of the scalp. That's so there was partially digested food in the stomach. The abdominal organs were apparently healthy. The heart was normal. The lungs showed signs of having been recently inflamed. There was no evidence of strangulation. There were two fissure fractures to the skull. So basically what happened, Paul, is that he threw up against the wall and murdered Okay. Um, so the cause of death uh, was shock. Due to extensive head injuries and also the uh, the rape, as as described by the pathologist. So we've painted a picture here of a horrendous crime, diabolical. The girl was uh, the the staff absolutely loved the girl. I mean, you know, it's just it's a nightmare. Um, And then the police are confronted with this this terrible, terrible, you know, crime. And the town, because it happened on a full moon, and the town began to, with the help of the media, just begin to think that maybe this was... Because things went quiet for a little while then. And the police, they were were fingerprinting. Paul, they had to fingerprint. And you know how we talk about eliminating suspects? Yeah. So you get prints, you then... Clearly, the staff at the hospital are not on record, so they have to fingerprint them. They had to fingerprint more than one thousand people that may have had or come into contact with that bottle. Think about that. Yeah. More than a thousand sets of fingerprints, and none of them they had a, they had a really good set. I've seen the prints; they're really, really good. If I had had prints like that at a, at a crime scene, I'd be mate, I'd be stoked. However, there's no, they don't have anyone on record. This is also after the Second World War where there were thousands of people displaced and yeah. a lot of Eastern Europeans had come to England after the war and, mm. you know, they, they had this crazy idea. This is going to sound absolutely wacko, but you need to go back to the 40s where there was a theory postulated by the police at the time and these are very very senior police that maybe it was a uh, sort of an eastern european displaced person as a result of world war ii which had just finished and because they were single men living in the countryside their sexual the the fact that they had not had any relationship with females had -hmm. driven them to a sexual frenzy that's the type of theories that would have been thrown into the hat they then began to fingerprint 5,000 displaced soldiers. Okay? Wow. No, no, okay. that's that's just the tip of the iceberg. Sure. Because they was they were still not getting um, a, a positive match. And then the, the mayor of the town and the media, they, they then did this huge campaign to get every single male person, which is, I mean, is that... Is that... What do you think about that in terms of just males,
1: Paul? It's... Uh, I think it's pretty reasonable. Oh, I agree. Um, but... Given the... Oh, the... Yeah. As we talked about last episode, statistically, very reasonable. Given the... Now that you've described the body... Which I really struggle with. Now that you've described, mm. described the state of the body, I... No. It, hmm. It's really hard to believe in a compassionate God when you see shit like that. But yes, I think... Um, yeah male okay I agree. so yeah uh, and by the way if every single time a crime was committed against uh, a woman or a child that was uh, and you had to round up everybody of a certain demographic and mm. fingerprint them that would be I mean that just wouldn't happen so this clearly affected the community deeply 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 they they
2: had new Scotland Yard they brought them up from London they had 30. Uniformed police officers in plain clothes—very unusual. I, 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 don't rec- I don't recall a time in, in my time in the police force where they would get uniformed, or it was rare. I mean, Christine, yes, it, it, they used her once to, to try and entrap that incredible. Remember the guy, the yeah, uh, you know, this the, this the sex sort of offending, and Christine was. Yeah. Occasionally, they'd get police, um, you know, to sort of be in plain clothes, but it's it, it's fraught with danger but they got you know 30 uh, uniform police to then go into plain clothes and to infiltrate their way into society to to th- their job was to go to every single house and fingerprint every single male over the age of 14 who were not bedridden okay and obviously, they, they were factoring, you know, if, if you were bedridden and couldn't possibly get to the hospital, to the hospital the scene of the crime, clearly, you, you didn't need to be fingerprinted. And they divided the town into 12 sections. And how did they do that, Paul? They used a clock face. Isn't that fascinating? They laid a clock face over a map of the town and they simply divided it up into 12 sections and then they got oh, the police. Isn't that fascinating?
1: That's very, okay, yeah.
2: And I'll tell you this now. As I said, this was the, well, I'll tell you this. They took 46,000 sets of fingerprints. That is extraordinary. They also Mm. sent, they sent, um, you know, they, they, they tried to get fingerprints from as far away as Australia, Canada, United States and other parts of the world and this this was a really really big case being driven by the the horrific nature of the crime and it is horrific it's so horrific and I think that's yeah. partially why I thought it was important to yeah. to to discuss I mean you don't need to talk about it. and we and generally we don't look that we've been going for god we've been going for five years we don't. We don't need to, to go into the gruesome details. However, um, I feel um, that the victim deserves us to to talk about um, the the horrendous crime in in more detail than uh, would normally be discussed.
1: Um, with, that, with that in mind, I feel like these stories sometimes feel a little less hard to swallow if uh, justice is exacted. So, did the fingerprinting spree yield results? Well,
2: one of the ways they enticed people to give their fingerprints yeah. was that they made a promise. The promise was that all the fingerprints would be destroyed and they were going to have sort of a, a big day where they'd get all the fingerprints in front of the media, in front of whoever wanted to be there. They'd sort of mash them up with water and turn them into pulp. Now, you may recall, Paul and listeners, that when I was in the Central Fingerprint Bureau, we used to, if you were found not guilty, we used to make, in the courts would say, look, your fingerprints will be destroyed. And guess what? They weren't. They weren't, because we used to. We were. We were told um, that we were to. So a solicitor and uh, the defendant would rock up. They'd. They'd have the court details to say we have permission to. You know, get our fingerprints back because we were found not guilty, and we were under instruction at the Central Fingerprint Bureau on the QT to take a copy of everyone's fingerprints. So people were under the illusion. Their prints were being destroyed, but I can bet you any amount of money that all those people in, at least in Sydney or, or New South Wales, who think their fingerprints were destroyed, they weren't. I'm sure you'd get your original charge prints, you know, your actual inked prints back that you'd been when you were charged, you know, you were fingerprinted in a police station. Yep. You'd, you'd get those back, and you know, some people would stand there and look at you, and with glee they'd sort of tear them into little pieces, and you know, or, or you know, take them home and burn them. But little did they know that um, yeah, and it's like anyone that's ever applied to join any police force in the world, their police, their prints are on file. My fit my pl- my fingerprints are at the central fingerprint bureau. So are Christine's, um, and so is Why everyone. Not? I don't think. No, don't... no, they're not. If you've <laughs> never been fingerprinted. God. No. But that that's this is a really interesting case because they've got they've got the the best fingerprints they've they've eliminated the prints. Yeah. And I'm actually sitting here looking at at the two well, I shouldn't say this to you at this juncture, but I'm let's just say that I'm looking at a pair of two. I'm looking at the latent print that was dusted yep. on the bottle and I'm actually yep. looking at you'll be pleased to know listeners, I'm also looking at a person that ultimately was charged. Okay? Okay. Um, So that's sort of... We can all breathe a slight sort of sigh of relief. Um, Because ultimately, uh, they they have a campaign where they go to, as I said, the houses of every single male, Mm -hmm. and they go to a house in the village because they had a feeling that this was clearly committed by someone that had an intense local knowledge who -hmm. felt comfortable in you know for example the grounds of the hospital they go to this guy's house he's living with his parents he's a nondescript male person yeah he'd had a stint in the military and they say to him, "We we would like to get your fingerprints," and they he he just sort of he volunteers, and um, so basically, it's important to to appreciate that it was actually thirteen weeks of intense fingerprint investigation, and they were feeling they were really under the pump the, the pressure. To, to you know to catch this person. And then what I alluded to before about the full moon, it had happened on a full moon, the next full moon was was happening, and the the town became obsessed with the idea that he was going to strike again on the night ah, of the full okay. moon. Yeah. And you know there were there were there were stories of of whole groups of school children that just that had to normally walk close to the hospital to get to their yeah. school. Yeah. P- kids were just not turning up to school. Parents were refusing to let their children go to school for fear that they'd be abducted by this fucking psychopath. And then on the eleventh of August in nineteen forty eight the um, the police visit this Again, this fairly nondescript place in Blackburn Mm -hmm. and there's a guy there now. So they, um, they go to this guy's house and Uh he's, they take the impressions. He's, he's a 22 year old. He's a flour mill packer and he supplies his fingerprints. His name's Peter Griffiths and he just gives them his prints and they then realize that his fingerprints are identical. ...with those found on the Winchester bottle... ...beneath the murdered child's cot. And... ...they... ...they go to his house and they start talking to him... ...and... ...he... ...he's arrested. And he's put in the police car... ...and... He says, I've never, ever been to the hospital. He said, um, as a young kid, I used to, used to play there in the disused quarry, which is nearby. And then they caution him. And then this Peter Griffith says to the senior police officer, he says, is it my fingerprints? Why are you came for me? And they caution him again and they say, yes. And then when they get him to the police station, yeah. they tell him about the bottle. They caution him again. And he says that he was having a a quiet night. He decided to go out on the town by himself. Mm-hmm. And he left home about 6 o'clock that evening. And he goes to a, a pub called the Dun Horse Pub. And he describes in some detail how much alcohol he had the amount of alcohol he had that night for me uh, I don't mind a drink but I, I ha- I'm finding this slightly problematic because he said he had five pints of beer yeah and a pint of Guinness and two double rums okay
1: that's a fair bit of booze um, yeah
2: and then he goes sort of he so he's drinking a fair bit. And then he said he had about six pints of bitter. Can you? Is, can people do that?
1: Hang on. Six pints of bitter after all of what you just said? Correct. Yep. Where the fuck was he standing? That, that's I do if, if you are a, like a serious alcoholic... No, I just can't believe it. It
2: sounds bizarre. Then it, he, he, he stayed there till closing time. Mm-hmm. And then he walks <clears throat> down Jubilee Street, which is off Darwin Street. And he sees a guy smoking a cigarette sitting in a small car and he describes the car he says it's got wire wheels it was painted silver he didn't know him and he asked the guy for a light because he's you know he he couldn't find a light for his cigarettes Um. and they stayed chatting for a little while and the guy says to him are you you going home and the guys and this sort of the guy says no no the guy that's been drinking griffiths he says Mm -hmm. no no i've been um I've had a fair bit to drink. I'm just going to walk around and sober up. And he then... They're, they're having a conversation <clears throat> and the guy gives him a lift but he drops the offender outside yeah. the Queen's Park Hospital. Okay? Yeah. And that's the last time they ever saw each other. But he, it's it's kind of weird that he was dropped near the, the hospital. hospital. yeah, And... He then jumped the railings and then all of a sudden he, he says to the police that he just finds himself in the ward and he takes his shoes off and he tries to open the door, but it turns out that there was a, he heard an, a nurse inside no. humming and moving things around as though like she was washing something. It turns out that she was in the kitchen and he waits for a few minutes and then he goes in through a, um, a small window and then he picks up a bottle which turns out to be the bottle and he, the reason he picked the bottle up was that he was going to use that as a weapon in case he was confronted and then he, he fell against the bed when he thought he heard the nurse coming and the kid wakes up and starts to cry. So at this stage, I, I have a feeling that this was not premeditated. But as he's crouching down next to this child's bed, hiding from the nurse, the child's crying, and then the child, this is from his statement, opens her eyes and sees, sees him. And then what does he do? He picks the girl up and he carries her and then, and this is a rather poignant part of the story, the young girl puts her arm around his neck and they go out into the, the hospital field and he said that he put her down on the grass and she started crying again and he tried to stop her from crying. And he then says that he lost his temper. And he says to the police in the interview, that you know what happened next. But he never ever... He admitted in some detail mm. to the murder. But he never ever admitted to the sexual assault. Right. He would never ever discuss it. Yeah. And he came home... Later that morning, his parents were asleep and he woke up, had breakfast, went to the cinema and then he read the papers about the murder and he basically said when he was um, charged with murder that he didn't want, want to say anything at all and he was put before the court. He took the jury 19 minutes to determine his guilt. They tried to um, enter a plea of schizophrenia because his father had schizophrenia. Yeah. Um, however, um, there were other experts that said he showed no signs of any, any mental illness at all. Yeah. And after 19 minutes of deliberation, uh, they, they found him guilty and he was sentenced to death when they went through his belongings at his parents house they found a um, a letter written on a piece of paper Mm -hmm. and it was titled warning and there were these lines for lo and behold when the beast looks down upon the face of beauty it stays its hand from killing and from that day on it was one dead, and it signed the terror, which I think is extraordinary. They then found a uh, a pawn ticket from a uh, a suit that he'd uh, sent away to be sold, and they retrieved the suit and they found all sorts of um, evidence, um, you know, the the fabric. And the fabric that they found on his suit was that also found on the victim, yeah. and they also found uh, blood staining. And the girl had a fairly rare blood type, uh, type A, and they found stains. And you know this was all just part of putting the case together. Yeah. And when he was sentenced, uh, they then the the judge read out the sentence. And he said to the judge, "I I deserve to to die. Basically, I want to be hung. Uh, I feel that that is a sentence suitable for the terrible, terrible crime yeah. that I committed." And he was he was hung. And uh, that is the end of that particular story,
1: Paul. Deeply upsetting, deeply horrifying, and now I need to lie down. Well, that's honestly all the time we have for this week's episode of Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Uh, It is going to take me a couple of hours to recover from this, so I hope you're all doing okay. There will, of course, have been a trigger warning uh, on the description of the podcast, but we will be back later this week with Loose Ends to help keep you company and provide a palate cleanser. But in the meantime, please take a beat, take care of yourselves, and we will see you very soon for more Loose Units. Bye, everyone. Cheerio.